And that first morning, as we opened the doors, a man walked in and offered me a million dollars to sell the company that day. I could build another business that could make another million dollars, or I could start to see that life was putting me in a corner where I should contribute something different. Maybe you can overpower your environment in the short run, but in the long run, the environment almost always wins. You want to optimize so that the good habit is the path of least resistance. Hello, I'm Dan Murray Serta, and welcome to a very special episode of Secret Leaders. We've been making the UK Startup Podcast since 2017, and this is our 100th episode, where we're going to be bringing you a bunch of the most powerful stories and insights from some of the amazing guests I've had the privilege to interview over the past four years. Now, in some ways, when you look at other podcast output, 100 episodes feels like a tiny number but I'm proud of how we've actually followed our principles. When Rich and I started this show as a side hustle, we had no real plan or idea of where it would take us. We just thought it'd be fun to work together and meet a bunch of people we look up to. Over time, obviously, we've developed opinions about who should or shouldn't be on the show and why, improved our storytelling, and ultimately, we hope you'd agree that we've brought you a great mentoring experience right here in audio. I'm delighted to hit 100 episodes, and I'm looking forward to the next 100. Thank you for listening. Now, when I look back over the past 100 episodes, I realise how spoiled for choice we are when choosing the best bits. So I've decided to break it down into three sections. You'll hear war stories from the founders of some of the biggest unicorns, tales of mental health and adversity, and some world-changing ideas. First up is a series of stories from people at the very top of their game. I talked to Daniel Schrieber, the founder of insurance disruptor Lemonade, earlier this year. He shared some amazing insights on how he formulated the product that is currently disrupting one of the oldest white-collar games in town, insurance. We actually pretty consciously resisted the temptation to look up insurance on Wikipedia and start reading. (laughs) And instead, we took some um, office space uh, with a whiteboard and we spent a couple of months um, just asking ourselves the question of, you know, first principles thinking, what do we not like about insurance? How would we build an experience that we felt good about? We didn't want to study about how insurance actually works because it's hard to unknow that kind of thing as well. And if you want first principles thinking, use your ignorance for all it's worth. And we really did that. So we sketched out on whiteboards and all that kind of stuff, how we thought a great insurance experience would be, what the business model would look like, etc. And frankly, that bears more than a passing resemblance to what we look like now, five years later. You know, a lot changed, but the core did not. And then when we emerged from that room, we went and spoke to some venture capitalists. And it really was um, just the two of us and a PowerPoint. We we hadn't developed any technology. We didn't have any licenses. We did have a couple of people who said they would join us if we got funded. Professor Dan Ariely, the eminent behavioral economist, joined us as a founding team member. Um, Ty Sagalow, who was uh, a well-known persona in the insurance world in America, said he'd join us as our chief insurance officer. So... By that point, we had kind of the the skeletal outline of what a core team could look like. And we went and raised $13 million in a seed round. So when we were thinking about what kind of company did we want to build, we wanted to build one where, where the barriers are really high, where we're cognizant that we may or may not clear the, the hurdle, but that if we don't, it means that it's really tough and indeed even if we do maybe not everybody else can so the gray hair would be an advantage if you were founding a pokemon go any college kid who has the idea can execute that we did know that getting licensed by the great state of new york requires real gray hair real money real personas real resumes so part of our decision which industry to go after and in what structure the idea that we would actually establish insurance carriers um, we felt would winnow out, would, would kind of shrink the universe of potential competitors considerably. So that was a, something that we, we consciously did. So you've got your product, now what? Well, here's Will Shu, founder of Deliveroo, to talk about those early scrappy days when everyone had to roll up their sleeves and get stuck in. We were just in one neighborhood for the first probably three months. I was doing deliveries every night, and then I started recruiting scooter drivers as well, just kind of talking to them on the street, being like, hey... You want to join Deliveroo? And they were like, <laughs> who are you? Yeah. Like, what do you want? And, yeah. and so the early days was there was about three or four riders. Um, there was Mirza. There was Hanif. There was Saeed. And there was Matlub. And we used to just wait in the um, 
the Starbucks in the Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Like a little motley crew with your with your bikes ready. Oh, we to... were definitely a motley crew because we didn't have any business, right? So yeah. we were just sitting there like waiting for orders and we had this – I mean what we had really – so we had a consumer website, just the website. It was – we didn't have an app. It was not mobile optimized. So you'd have to kind of zoom in to the checkout button to, to actually transact. <laughs> so that was funny. We actually built a decent restaurant tablet. That that was pretty good. And then our writer app, we basically just had – we tried to build something because most of the writers had Android phones. So we built something in Titanium that ideally would work on both iOS and Android but kind of like didn't work on either. Yeah, we'd sit there like waiting for orders. Do you remember having like a good rapport with the other driver? Like what was it like? Was it kind of like fun and like camaraderie or was it kind of like at, like more so for you because it's your business and for them they're kind of just waiting around for something to happen? No, they were really all really nice guys, right? So we we had nothing to do. So we just chat to each other most yeah. of the time, right? Do they still, do they still ride? Yeah, Hanif does. Uh, Saeed does. Must Here's be some a, quite cool pride being like, no, I was I was the first. <laughs> I mean, I see them. Yeah, I try to have lunch with um, Hanif and Saeed. Mirza moved back to Pakistan. Okay. I don't know where Mount Lube is. I actually learned some pretty interesting things from them because – so they, we would always get kicked out of the hospital one because it closed like at 8, I remember. Mm-hmm. And there was one across the street that's like a smaller Starbucks and we'd go in there. And every day like the guy would kick us out. And I and I was always like trying to understand what – because we would buy stuff and they're like, no, you guys got to go. Like you can't just sit in here all day. And I guess it was probably – Probably the first time in my life that, you know, someone – how do I describe this? Looked at me in a way – I don't know if disdain is the right word, but maybe just very indifferent maybe is the right word. And, you know, because it's me and like three Pakistani guys and like I was kind of getting mad this guy was kicking us out all the time, right? These dudes were just like, hey, man, just go, like whatever. And I just realized that these people, you know, they, they were seen as anonymous is probably the best way to put it, right? Mm. And they weren't treated with with respect or dignity. And but they were they were so used to it, you know. That just kind of made me sad a bit. So you've got four riders, you've got a handful of restaurants in Chelsea. Yeah. And you've got what, is this like over the course of a year? You've kind of like started to get going? Yeah, so let's see. So year uh sorry, month three, yeah. we actually end up going to Mayfair. We called that MMS, Mayfair Marlebone Soho. So that's where we launched. Right. And so we started kind of – I remember the first big kind of account we had was Blackstone. They, they started ordering from us. We would do stuff like um, just hand out flyers on the street. I wore a kangaroo costume like too many times. I really uh-huh. didn't enjoy wearing the kangaroo costume. Um, I still remember the Marlebone Street Fair of 2013, the real Greek – was that the real Greek – it was one of those restaurants, I don't remember, asked me, hey, do you mind wearing the kangaroo costume around to the street fair? And I was like, oh, okay. And I just remember like these – they weren't even kids. These, these women, <laughs> these they were like 20 years old for sure. And they were like drinking, it. grabbing my tail like nonstop. And I'm that. like, and I'm like, listen, do I want to be here in a kangaroo costume? Um, was it even deli- delivery branded, or was it? No, it no, was no, a wasn't. It was just costume. a random kangaroo. It was brilliant with with the hat on and everything. The yeah. head. right. So you literally couldn't. You could have might as well not have been you, which is the best part. Yeah. About well, it. they yeah they were just grabbing my tail and wouldn't leave me alone, and so I was like, okay. Do you ever whip it out of the Christmas party still? No, I haven't worn the. Uh, it's it just gets me too hot, as you can see. I'm sweating right That's now. That's very so. true. Yeah, I can not really. I mean, imagining you in a kangaroo costume, it I feels mean, like animal cruelty in, both in, ways. In, in. Now you're in the growth stage, and things are moving faster and faster. Here's Joe Malone talking about the astonishing early days of her perfume empire. Finding the first shop was a big emotional thing for me. Gary, by that point, Gary had left his job with Higson Hill. And we were sort of side by side learning how to be shopkeepers together. We opened our first shop in October 1994. And we were literally the night before putting bottles on the shelves. And we were thinking, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow? And that first morning, as we opened the doors, a man walked in and offered me a million dollars to sell the company that day. It was an American guy. And uh, we so hadn't that's, that's, even that's closed. the thing about um, sound even... recordings. You didn't see my face. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but that was one true. of pure shock. <laughs> he didn't. Uh, we weren't even open for 24 hours. He offered me a million dollars to sell the company that day and walk away. And I never saw him again. I said, thank you very much, but no, thank you. And it was either, it was either a journalist after a story. It was either the real thing. Mm. 
or somebody playing a horrible joke. But either way, it didn't tempt me for one second, not one second. During that time, you know, opening that first little shop, we went in the first five years, we would go from week to week, month to month, and we would watch our takings go higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. The first Christmas, we turned over our first million. We're on Christmas Eve, two hours before we were about to shut the shop. That is £364 short of our first million. We didn't open that shop with no sort of market to start. The face clinic had been the foundation for that business. So what people don't see is the five to ten years of, of grafting and building. Nobody opens a shop with a product and it just does that. It's, it's all those foundations that you lay. And did you already have demand and people nagging you during the process? Oh, my God. Well, yeah. well, that's why we had the shop. Sure. Because we, I couldn't cope with making it at my kitchen sink with my plastic jugs any longer. So for me, that was a huge emotional shift going into having somebody manufacture for you. And I was just like a tiger with her cubs, you know. I'd, it's not strong enough. I don't like the texture of it. I don't like the top on the bottle. It was all kinds of... Things. I was actually going to ask this. Do you feel like you're a good teacher or are you so obsessive? Because you know, it's a difficult one. It's, it's scent and you're the person with the nose. So it must be so hard, you know, to encourage other people to do it your way. But to do it right, I don't it must want, be very I know, hard. I don't want someone to do it my way. I still, to this day, I create all the fragrances that bear my little red dot. And my last fragrance with Jo Malone was Pomegranate Noir. So up until then, so after that, I've not created any of those fragrances for Jo Malone since. But I don't want someone to create like me. I want them to create... That doesn't make people happy. What makes people happy is being true to who you really are. And, of course, all my fragrances are about my memories and my thought process and my means of communication. What I want them to learn from me is to find that thing that really makes you happy and where you're really creative, because that's what will bring you fulfilment in your life. But it's not all roses. What happens when things go wrong? Here's Cal Henderson, founder of Slack, to talk about his company's reaction to this whole pandemic thing that everyone's been going on about. Our first offices to close were um, South Korea and Japan. So that was, you know, kind of an, an early warning of what was to come, even if we didn't see it that way at the time. But then shortly after that, we realized that it was going to be logistically very challenging to shut down kind of office by office. Um, and there's different here in California, there's different guidance at the country level, the state level and the city level as to, um, you know, how how much of a lockdown there should be. And so we chose to, once some of the California guidance came into effect, to apply that across all of our offices globally so that we just had a clear message, which started three weeks ago with a strongly um, suggesting everybody work from home globally and then about a week later um, closing all of the offices globally. So none of our offices are open around the world right now, even you know in countries that don't have strong advisories yet. So we're thinking about Although we're a company that um, you know makes a product that really enables distributed work, we weren't a distributed company. The vast majority of 2,000 plus Slack employees come into an office every day. We're distributed all around the world in different offices, but but in offices nonetheless. And there's a whole bunch of kind of process that goes with with having physical offices as well that doesn't necessarily very easily translate into into being distributed one of those is that when a new employee joins we give them a laptop that we've set up by it being shipped to our office and you know the it team installing software on it we have to figure out what does that process look like in a world where there's no office and and right now in a world where it's very hard to buy laptops um and so there's been a lot of um, this kind of logistical challenges. Um, we have a lot of kind of hourly employees um, who work in our offices and provide office services. Um, so we're paying those hourly employees, even though they, um, through this period, even though they, they don't have um, any work to do each day. So first and foremost, we're trying to look after our own employees. So as a leader, I think it's been important to to show kind of empathy and vulnerability that it's we're all going through this together. It's like, I have kids at home. I'm finding it difficult that I'm not getting any exercise or getting outside and seeing people. Um, and I think it's, you know, we did a internal company all hands maybe a week and a half ago with all the exec team. And we're like a lot of the exec team's children ended up being in the all hands as they, you know, wandered by the call. Um, and I think you're it, all turning into that guy in the BBC. Exactly. You know, like that is now no longer, you know, a point of shame, but a point of pride, I think, of, uh, you know, showing that we're all in this together and we all have kind of different challenges and constraints and that it's uh, 
we can have a lot of empathy for employees who are in a, in a difficult situation. We'll have links to those amazing conversations in the show notes. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte, who knows them inside out, so you don't screw them up, and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So... Whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. Now, if you know me, you'll know how passionate I am about mental health. In this section, I've picked some of the most raw and vulnerable stories from our guests over the past three years. We all benefit from sharing these stories, both through destigmatizing the challenges and learning what helps. Now, first up is Nicola Kilner. Co-founder of cosmetics giant Desiem, sharing the story of when her co-founder Brandon tragically died after suffering from severe mental health issues and being removed from the company. So it was a Monday morning and um, Dion had received a press inquiry um, from a journalist in Canada who said that they had heard a report that Brandon had passed away and could we confirm if it was true? Um, And we hadn't heard anything about this. So I... Um, rang Stephen and said and you know I was very much think surely this is you know this is nothing we'd have heard and um, so I said Stephen or Dion Dion's got this inquiry do you think you can just find somehow if, if there's any truth to it so Stephen said on the way to the office I'll go by a Toronto police station and, and just kind of ask and then when he got to the police station and they confirmed that he had passed away on the day before on on the Sunday morning and I remember Stephen ringing me and I was actually breastfeeding my daughter at the time and I just remember that shock of it can't be true and even though you know someone is you know someone's been spiraling out of control for for a year now it'd been 12 months you still just don't expect it to happen you don't expect it to suddenly end and then I think just realizing you know does 
who knows about this? Like, and actually, if the press have already got hold of it, that means it's suddenly going to be in the news. And you know how sadly bad news always seems to spread quicker than good news. Um, so, you know, quickly we said, look, we have to tell the people who he was closest to. So, you know, between Stephen and I, we identified probably a group of about 10 people who I think he would have classed as his family. And we rung each of those to, so that they could kind of hear from us um, what happened. And then quite quickly then had to get a note out to the whole team because by that point, the news had started to spread. Journalists were contacting employees on LinkedIn, on Instagram. And so I sent a note to the whole team um, not the kind of thing you want to do on on email, but equally, it's on a thousand employees, you had no choice. In, indeed, and um, we told everyone to that it was their choice: go home, stay, and hug each other. But clearly, there's no expectation for anyone to do work. We just need to to just digest this this news, and when we're ready, heal. Um, obviously, I had a three week old baby at that point, so I was at home, and again, I think that was a one of the hard points around wanting to kind of be with everyone in Toronto. I was at home um, in the UK and just figuring out what's next. You know, what does this mean? Again, for anyone who's who's been around someone with mental health challenges, and especially when it ends with a death, it's, you just have so many what ifs, like, could we have done something different? And again, it's part of the process where we've we've spoken to multiple different people because I think we're still trying to learn. I don't believe it's all good enough when people say you just have to wait until they're ready to accept help because in our case, he never accepted help. He got sectioned, I think it was three times in the UK, twice in Canada, twice in New York. And then each time he would seemingly be better within a week and, and be discharged again because they would say well he's not at harm to himself because he wasn't someone who you know he didn't give an impression he was going to ever hurt himself but they didn't see the harm you know he'd built this business of over a thousand employees that he was hurting like he he was hurting himself in other ways even if it wasn't physically but it didn't kind of fit the criteria of I guess what they would would class as, as needing help so I think you know if, for the rest of my life, it's an area that I want to learn more about because I just don't think that, I think humans want to help, but we don't have the systems in place. And again, it's a, I know it's a very fine balance with human rights in terms of at what point does the control of someone else pass over to someone else? And especially, you know, when, when it's so hard, I think to sometimes self-diagnose and, and, and self-reflect that you might be struggling uh, with, with brain health. But I think it's definitely an area that I would like to learn more on. Um, but then, you know, I he passed away on the Sunday and I flew, uh, quickly got Mila a passport within a couple of days. And, you know, within a, five days, we'd flown to Toronto because it was his funeral at, at the weekend. And again, it was a moving time. Um, and just this this sense of just devastation, sadness, confusion frustration anger like just all of these emotions going around as to kind of how we got to the place where this has happened loss is a common theme in many people's stories but even the worst times in our lives can be gateways into something beautiful as the former chief business officer for google x mo gordat told me last year i'd like to start from the idea of how we measure success and you know like everyone who's interested in business we measure success normally by titles and recognition and sometimes awards and mostly financial uh, uh, you know gain and i've had the, the the fortune of getting those things very early in life and none of them actually felt uh, rewarding for my state of happiness at a, at a later stage in life i realized that success doesn't happen for things that are really, really important in our world because the models that we follow to measure those things like our environmentalist effort or people who are attempting to spread compassion, for example, and, and you know, NGOs around the world are less successful than businesses because they're not motivated by the same success factors that business people are. They're not running the same process that business people are. Those two parts of my life came together in a tragic moment in 2014. So I, I worked like most of us who chased success to achieve money and wealth and all of that at the beginning. 
I failed to find happiness completely. So I searched for my happiness for 12 years in a very engineered way. And then I was tested in 2014 when my teacher actually and my coach and my son and my best friend Ali left our world because of a, a human error. So, so a surgeon did five mistakes in a very, very simple operation and I lost Ali. And so I lost my son and found myself in a place where I was forced to think about what actually matters. And what actually matters is you could, I could build another business that could make another million dollars or whatever, or I could actually start to see that maybe life was putting me in a corner where I should contribute something different. And so I, I of course, was not in my typical, logical, composed self. When you lose a child, it's the hardest, hardest thing you'll ever have to go through. It's, it still hurts today, six years later, exactly as much as it hurts the day he left. Uh, but then I, I was sent a message by his sister about a dream that Ali had, uh, which was that he was everywhere and, uh, and part of everyone. He said, I was everywhere and part of everyone. It felt so amazing. I didn't want to go back to my, to my body. That was his dream. And to my weird brain, when I heard his sister tell me that, I took it as an objective. Just like a typical businessman. Okay, so the target is everywhere and part of everyone. And so I can make you part of everyone, my son. My son. I, I, he meant everything to me. I, wo I worked at Google at the time, so I knew how to scale things to billions. And so I decided, you know what? I'm just going to write down what you told me, which is really the work we did together on happiness. I'm going to share it with the world. I'm going to find some way on the internet to make you part of everyone. Now, my math brain at the time said, if I could get him and his message to go to 10 million people, through six degrees of separation over 20 to 60 years, you're logically going to make him part of everyone because 10 million people are going to spread that across the years to others. And it was sort of me sandbagging the target, if you want. Okay. And so Soul for Happy was released. It was completely from the heart. It was completely an engineer's way of, uh, of talking about happiness in a very structured way, but infused with Ali's spirit and his beauty and his you know, wisdom in so many ways. And so that mix worked. Within six weeks, we had reached 87 million views on, uh, on the internet. And you know, we're not measuring views because views is a, is a cheat, really. We're measuring views that take action. So, so people who actually get the message and then act upon it, we say, okay, maybe they will not reach happiness, but at least we have made them want to reach happiness and do the work that is needed or we've given them the compassion to make others happy. And so the team, we were at a small team of four people at the time, got together and said, you're sandbagging the target. It was 10 million happy at the time. Uh, we need a bigger target. And so again, in my typical uh, Google-like thinking, I was like, okay, let's go from 10 million to a billion, right? And I was standing in, uh, we were, uh, I was going to make a speech in an event in the Netherlands, in, uh, in uh, Rotterdam at the time, 10,000 people in the audience. The team pressured me and said, you should tell them about a billion happy. And so whoop, on stage, you know, six months after the book came out, we were committing to a billion happy. Of course, many challenges come from the business itself. And this amazing story of resilience comes from my interview with Baroness Martha Lane Fox, the co-founder of lastminute.com. You managed to IPO before the dot-com bubble bust. Two weeks before. Two weeks before. Yeah. Um, but whilst that sounds really good, I mean, you know, good, objectively, smart, just in the right time, as the founders, presumably that doesn't really mean much to you in terms of outcome and reality and stress levels and you're stuck with another 50 weeks regardless anyway, right? So can you take us through that period and some practicality yeah. for guests so well, they, no, yeah. they know what that means? Well, it's a hardcore process going public and layer into that trying to run and grow a business in parallel and, and it's not an excuse, it was just a thing. I was 28, Brent was 33. It wasn't like we knew a whole load of stuff. We weren't kind of in the city every day talking about flotations. This was all new. So not only did you have a new industry with a bubble about to burst, with a company that was growing, with a massive, massive, massive expectation on us. Again, it seems ridiculous right now, but we were on the front page of the papers pretty much every day. I would get stopped in the street for my autograph, which again, I mean, what for an e-commerce entrepreneur? It's completely bizarre. But it was such a 
was the excitement that had built up around just something that we were capturing, which was much less to do with us and much more to do with the UK and kind of entrepreneurialism being sort of let out of the bottle, Blair government, you know, change of face, change of perspective in the UK. And it really was all bound up together in one thing, I think. And then there was, on top of that, this kind of huge, enormous uh, expectation about what the tech sector was going to become and be, which was never, ever going to be realistic because every single company was being valued as a winner, as a potential, you know, billion dollar, $10 billion company. Not that that's the only measure of success and one I actually really rebuke, but anyway, that's how it was being measured. And um, one in 10 companies, if that, were going to make it. So... We went public because it was the right thing to do to get the biggest amount of cash in order to be able to keep scaling the business and have a long-term future. But two weeks later, internet blow, <laughs> internet stocks blow up. Internet uh, creates massive stock market collapse beyond just tech sector. And we become the most reviled people in the country because all of a sudden, all of this excitement and hype, oh, we can blame them. They're responsible. You know, the fact that it had come from the US, most of this noise, the fact that it, you know, obviously it was investors making these decisions, it wasn't us, all of that was um, hard to stomach. And frankly, not only then are you managing a business, trying to grow a business, trying to live up to the expectation, but also we were trying to navigate through some pretty unpleasant headlines, particularly, as I hope Brent would agree, about me. Because guess what? The young woman was going to always be the one that was going to be knocked. Uh, I was the one that had been built up and I was the one that was going to be knocked. So I really remember um, two weeks or so after the IPO, I never just, as we've already discussed, go to bed and go to sleep because I find that quite hard. But I just had to get into my bedroom and not talk to anybody for 48 hours. I was completely and totally wiped out by it. I was getting handwritten letters telling me I was a bitch. It was really that severe and but from who what type from of person? investors saying that oh. i'd ripped off the whole economy and it was all my fault and what was i thinking get back in my box in fact there's a journalist who shall remain nameless who wrote everything from i should be assassinated to i should wear a burqa to you know all this stuff i think about it now and i think god actually it was pretty bad then but imagine if it was now in the age of social media i wonder what i might have been up against i don't know if it'd be better or worse but i fear worse the most important thing was to try and make sure that the company and the people working there for whom I felt primary responsibility were on the level and knew that this was just noise and we just had to focus on delivering great deals to customers and things would probably come back round, which they did, slowly. But it was slowly. And, you know, we went from a share price, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the high of like £5.35 down to 19p. Mm. And that's a big collapse. If you think about it, we hadn't really had much money to pay people, so they were all being paid in options. None of their options were worth anything. All that stuff. And you get into this horrible cycle where the press becomes the reality, even though the press is a complete and totally distorted reality. Yeah, and the press is calling the share price at that point. A bit, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to yeah, the extent of yeah. creating the, yes. the outrage. Yes, exactly. Um, so that was hard. So what would be like the main takeaways that you have um, for yourself? Did you spend time afterwards reflecting? Are you a reflective person like um, that? I think I am. Um, I don't know. God, that's a deep question. I look inside my soul. I'm quite a practical person. I think it's useful as long as you use it. I don't really believe in the kind of just going round and round stuff without moving out of it and on from it. So I definitely think about that period of time and what could I learn as you know trying to be a leader about myself and how can I do better in the future? I mean, I hope I do, not to ask other people. But I don't enjoy the process of just reflecting for reflecting's sake. I think it's important to feel like it's being channeled somewhere. It's the telling of these stories that will really move the needle in our society. Here's a lesson in openness from Damien Bradfield, the co-founder of WeTransfer. My mum has always suffered from depression and uh, it was always quite a big deal in our family, but it was never labelled as such. I think in a similar vein to you only realising later that you had ADHD, I think. <clears throat> My brother suffered from dyslexia and dyslexia wasn't diagnosed, I think it was until like 1989 or something like that. And I remember my brother being diagnosed and it being quite a big deal, but... I think to this, I'm sure to this very day, you know, my family is still in denial that um, my mum suffers from depression. Although she would go to bed for a week, she was just having a bad time. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything more than that, and we, we could deal with it. So I think that was always very, very evident, and we always knew that it was very evident um, with my mum and actually my best friend. And once you actually pinpoint uh, depression, you understand what it's about, you suddenly realise you know an awful lot of people around you that are pretty similar. I didn't realise that I, I didn't think that I suffer from depression at all. I mean, to your point, I'm not sure that I necessarily do. I just sometimes feel pretty shit. And it doesn't have to do with the weather. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the great thing about living in L.A. is that 
everybody has a therapist. I know it's cliche, but they do. And what I loved about LA and my team there is, you know, you would have in your calendar, everyone has a shared calendar. So you'd see in the calendar, you know, Monday, 8 a.m. meeting with such and such, and Tuesday, blah, blah, and then Wednesday, you could see therapy, you know, lunchtime. And pretty much everyone would put it in there as much as they would do that they're going to the gym or they're going to go, um, you know, pick up the dog or something. And I was really impressed that it was just so transparent, that it was, you know, there was a very thorough understanding that uh, good mental health was equally as important as good physical health. Um, so I, I got myself a therapist and probably the most fucked up therapist that you could ever meet who would just say to me, okay, Damon, this is quite nice. I understand what you're saying, but you're being very British. And he'd say to me, now take the elevator down. And I'd go, I don't understand what you mean. He goes, you see, come on, go take the elevator down. And then it would be another level of darkness underneath it. And he broke me. I mean, like, he had this amazing ability to just sort of unpeel this onion of layers of complexity. And I'd come away from it feeling absolutely fucking broken. But... It was a revelation that was like, fuck, I didn't actually know that these were sitting there. I had no idea that this was, well, this wasn't normal, that this wasn't, you know, what everybody had. I thought that everybody sort of went through these, you know, good days and bad days and that it, you know, you could be, you know, super, it could be a super high and a super low. And I classify myself as an ambivert because sometimes I can be super extra and not mind sitting on a stage. And other times I just want to go and sit in the corner and you can go to hell. I, mean, I don't want to talk to anybody. And that, that, you know, is a spectrum that I have quite a lot. What I was fascinated by was... Uh, as soon as I would say to somebody, oh, my God, you know, I'm thinking of this, they would go, oh, yeah, shit, me too. How about, you know, you want to grab a cup of coffee? And um, it didn't matter whether I was talking... Uh, I get a feeling like I'm pitching my book all the time, but the book was quite a revelation because I talked to people like Gary Kasparov and Stephen Fry. And, of course, Stephen Fry, you know, everybody knows, has been suffering from depression for years. That's the creative spectrum, right? The creative spectrum, it's totally common and accepted that if you're in the creative field, you're going to basically be... I mean, Stephen always said when he moved to L.A. He, uh, that they said to him, oh, Stephen, you have everything. You're gay, uh, Jewish, and bipolar. You know, Hollywood has got everything for you. This is the ingredients for success. In, in business, that's just not the case. In business, I don't know many people that you know, really uh, are able to honestly, like Mills, come out and say, you know what, I'm just suffering from something and I need a bit of space. I need a bit of time because I still think there's a huge you know, stigma attached to it. Why should this be something that you would try and cover up? I think it's super important um, that, you know, we do find a way of being able to talk about it and talk about it in a way, actually, that um, isn't stigmatized or polarized or anything else. You know, if you ask me, would I want to change the way that I'm constructed and built in the way I think? 100% no. It's who I am. It's what gives me the good days and the bad days. And it's why I love Donnie Darko. And it's why I love, you know, Richard Curtis films. It gives me that spectrum that I think is, is, a, is an asset. I wouldn't change it for the world. I know some of you have experienced the pain of setting up and managing your business's finances. You want to be moving the needle for your company, but instead you're on the phone to your bank trying to do stuff like send a large payment which has been blocked. This is why we're so happy to be working with Revolut for business. Their business account lets you manage your company's finances and have full visibility on all outgoings. With Revolut Business, you can send and receive money in over 150 currencies at the interbank rate and even set up multi currency accounts. But what I like the most is that you can integrate with all your apps or plugins like accounting and expenses and manage your finances easily from one place so you can focus on your actual business goals. We've partnered with Revolut Business to bring you guys an exclusive two-month paid plan for free which you can't find anywhere else. Go to revolut.com slash secret leaders to claim your free two-month trial. That's revolut.com slash secret leaders. Secret Leaders is all about great ideas, and we've had some amazing writers, thinkers, and brainiacs on the show over the years. First up is the inimitable James Clear, author of the global phenomenon Atomic Habits. I'll let you guess what our conversation was about. There are a couple different ways to define what a habit is. Um, sometimes people define it as, oh, it's a behavior that's automatic or mindless, uh, you know, something you do like automatically, like brushing your teeth or tying your shoes. But there's another definition which I like, which I think applies to the question you just asked, which is that um, a habit is a behavior that's tied to a particular context. And what you start to realize is that you cannot have a behavior outside of an environment. They all happen within a certain context. So you're your couch might be the environment where your habit of watching Netflix happens at 7 p.m. And what you find from this, and this is how it relates to the pandemic, 
anytime the environment changes in a big way, behavior changes in a big way. And we all have experienced that this year with, um, you know, working from home more frequently or, you know, being on lockdown or not being allowed to go into certain places or having to do things in different ways. As the environment has changed, your behavior has shifted. So suddenly, you know, your kitchen table is now your office or it used to be that the pantry was miles away from you when you were at work, but now it's right around the corner and you can snack all day long. I think the question to ask yourself is, what is the environment that I'm spending time in? What is that optimized for? Because what you often find is that, you know, you're kind of inheriting these environments that were previously for different uses. And so they're not optimized for the behaviors that you want to occur. Maybe you can overpower your environment in the short run, but in the long run, the environment almost always wins. And so you want to optimize prime your environment so that the good habit is the path of least resistance. So a couple examples of how I've done that this year. I knew I was going to be spending more time at home during the pandemic, and I thought, well, I'd like to use at least some of that time productively, so I want to read more. So I bought some books off my reading list. I've got, you know, four or five next to me on the desk here. I have a couple on the coffee table in the living room. I have a couple next to my bed. I'm sort of sprinkling books around the environment to make it really easy for me to pick one up and read. I also took the apps that are on the home screen of my phone. I moved them to the second screen and took Audible and put it in the home bar. So it was the first thing that I would see when I would open up my phone. So again, trying to prime the environment to make the good habit easy. If you look around, this also impacts your bad habits or things that, you know, let's just say behaviors people want to reduce. A lot of people feel like, oh, I'm watching too much TV. But walk into any living room. Where do all the couches and chairs face? You know, it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? And so this same line of thinking can be applied for reducing bad habits or building good ones. But I think the punchline is you want to make your good habits obvious. You want them to be the first thing you see. You want to make them a very a visible and available. You want to make your bad habits invisible. You want to hide them. This is why you want to unsubscribe from emails. Or if you're trying to not spend money on electronics, don't follow the latest YouTubers who review that stuff or unboxing videos or whatever. And you also want to uh, make it difficult for bad habits. You want to increase the number of steps, you know, so increase friction. And for bad habits, reduce friction. It's surprising how much little changes like that can help. Like they're not going to curb like a true addiction. But if I buy a six pack of beer and I put it in the front of the fridge, I'll drink one every night just because it's there. But if I tuck it on the lowest shelf and put it toward the back of the fridge where I like, can't really see it unless I bend down, sometimes it'll sit there for weeks and I won't even remember that I got it. Something similar happens with my phone. For the last year or so, I've tried to follow this rule where I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And it doesn't work for everybody, but it works well for me. And what's funny is that if I leave it next to me, I'm like everybody else. I'll check my phone every three minutes. But if I have it in another room, I have a home office. It's only like 30 seconds away, but I never go get it. And I'm like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes when it was next to me. But in another sense, I never wanted it so bad that I would work 30 seconds to go get it. Debbie Wasco was the founder and CEO of Love Home Swap and is the co-founder of Albright. Now, their mission is to support women in business. We heard her story on the podcast two years ago. So we quite quickly got to this project Albright because what we felt very strongly was if women could crack sisterhood, if women could build better networks, network outside of their swim lane, that would help them to build confidence and resilience, which is often where they're lacking, and to skill up in areas where they feel like they can't do X, Y, and Z because they're not, they don't know how to do the thing, whatever the thing is. So it, it got there super quickly, and we had this... We were sitting in Little House. We had this cocktail menu that we carried around. <laughs> we still got it somewhere months afterwards with all this. So I think what AJ and I have always had is... We bounce off each other a lot. We're, we're really, really good mates. I think quite a lot of people are really into, like, are you, do you really, because we seem to really like each other. Do you really like each other? We really like each other. Um, we have a laugh. I really, really respect her. And I think she would say the same about me. And so, and we're really good at different things. So how did she feel? You'd have to ask her. I'm sure she had moments of, oh my God, you know, so she should have done it. It was a massive change. I've done scrappy stuff my whole life. Nobody's paid me a salary since I was 24 years old. Very different for her, two children, all the rest of it. But we just did it. And what happened was she came out, I was on holiday in that summer and she came out on the holiday for three days and there was a moment of sort of looking each other in the eye and saying, are we going to do it? 
And I think if you asked her about it, she would say, she knows me well enough now, but she did then. When I'm in, I'm in. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And then that gave her the confidence to jump. And then that, that's what we did. Always fascinating and really hard, the hardest business I've ever done, because you accidentally find yourself in the hospitality industry and all sorts of things you never thought about suddenly come to your doorstep mm. and it's a living, breathing beast. And you're learning to ask everyone what allergies they have. It, it's really real. So it's hard, it's super hard. What's also interesting is it feels much more public property for people than anything else I've ever done because it's about women. And women and men have very strong reactions to what we're doing, often super positive, enthusiastic, supportive. You know, I genuinely feel like we've changed the lives without sounding like an idiot, but we have for lots of people who are our members, who have gone through our free academy, who are on Albright Connect. However, to my earlier point on is there one type of entrepreneur, there's certainly not one type of woman. And when we raised... Um, the sort of first big investment round that we raised in the summer of 2018, we brought in a male chairman, um, Alan Layton, who chairs, he's probably the best known chairman in the UK, chairs Wagamama, Pandora, the co-op, he was the CEO of Asda, and he has invested, you know, a big sum personally twice now. To us, that just seemed like a really good idea because... Alan Layton was investing personally. We're by far the smallest company that he chairs. He's, a, you know, in all of those businesses, a, a big employer, big employer of women. It seemed like great advocacy, but for certain women, it was a betrayal. And for certain parts of the press, it was an indication that our mission was really compromised. I think times have changed, actually, even in the last year. I think there's much more of an understanding of the role that men have to play. But it's a bit with a feminism. And we do have a very particular view that's very inclusive, and that isn't everybody's view. How to think more effectively and how to get along with your colleagues. Super simple stuff, right? Well... Obviously not. But luckily, we had philosopher and founder of the School of Life, Alain de Botton, on the show to tell us how it's done. How does one think more effectively? I think it's understanding how our best thoughts come to us, tracking that process very carefully and trying to get more systematic. So it's like the move from um, foraging to agriculture. You know, when you forage, you you know you're amazed that you found a strawberry under a, a leaf, and uh, you know you you love that strawberry, but you don't quite know how it came about, and you have no sense of um, how you might realise it in a more systematic way. When you move to agriculture, you know there are seeds you can plant, there are ways, processes, etc., and there are some similarities with what you might do in areas of thinking. So it's really about watching how you've got to the thoughts that you're proudest of and then reverse engineering to trying to make a life where that's more likely to happen. One observation that, that one makes is um, many of our greatest thoughts come to us when we're not trying to think. And this is very odd. You know, why is it that you can sit and, 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 and try to work something out and then it's when you go in the shower that the thought comes to you, what's going on there? And sometimes we sort of shrug our shoulders and whatever. No, I mean, shower thinking is something you should really think about. Why is it that there are really, really good reasons why our thoughts come to us on trains and in showers and cafes, etc. There's an anxious part of the mind that is very scared of new ideas. Every new idea carries with it a charge of anxiety. Because even if it's a very good idea, it will carry with it a suggestion of something you need to change in your life. It might be that you need to have a difficult conversation with a colleague. It might be that you need to head out and start a new kind of life, etc. So because our minds are very keen on maintaining kind of stability, and they privilege stability over growth often, the process of, of developing our thoughts on things is intermittent. And there is one side of us that would like us not to have very good and creative thoughts, because it just keeps everything calm. But if we're really ambitious for ourselves, as I think we should be, we should try and let in some of those difficult thoughts. So how do you do that? Well, make sure that you're structuring in, building in to your thinking process, moments when it doesn't matter, in inverted commas, what you think, because when it matters a lot, you never have the good thoughts. And it doesn't matter in times that are interstitial times, you know, times in between things when you are, let's say, only having a bath, or only taking the train to your meeting, but that's the moment when the thoughts going to come. And I think the mind loves nothing more than to be able to focus on one thing, that has to it an unchallenging, slightly repetitive nature. And that leaves another more creative side of the mind free 
to produce its fruits. So that's why trains are good when there's a long view. Uh, there might be you know, trees intermittently crossing the horizon, just enough to keep things in focus, browsing the landscape while uh, another part of the mind can secrete its, its deeper thoughts. Some of the same qualities in a cafe. When people say, you know, I like being in a cafe, you don't want an overwhelming cafe where there's so many people you can't think, you know, there's no space inside your own mind. But it's, you know, you can be at the back, you can, there's a hubbub around, that relaxing hubbub, nothing's expected of you, you're just here hanging out. And yet, um, there's just enough distraction for the really creative thought to emerge. Couldn't agree more. I went to a cafe yesterday to do this interview, to write it up and research it, because it just, you know, felt much more appropriate to me than sitting in my home. And there's actually barely any difference. But you're right. It's just sort of it's less frightening. It's, yeah. it's odd to speak of fear in relation to creative thought. But I think we really have to budget for fear. Hmm. Any good idea is frightening because it's going to upset habit. And we are creatures that love to settle in habit, but habit's also our greatest enemy. So... How to get along with your colleagues is your other book. I guess the reasonable question is, what do your colleagues say about you? How do you think you are as a colleague? I think they probably find me a little bit eccentric and possibly a bit mad, um, but hopefully benignly so. But they probably think I'm, you know, ooh, there he is again with a new idea. I think there's a lot of eye rolling when I pitch up with a new idea. But look, hopefully we all get on and I very much respect them. And hopefully they at least tolerate me um, on a good day. But one of the things that School of Life does is to work with companies. One of the things that we really, really stress is that the concept of being a professional is at point an extremely unhelpful one because we understand why it comes into existence and there are limits to the degree of vulnerability and uh, nakedness that you can show in a work environment. However, budgeting in some of the complexities of what a real human being is like and making that seem unsurprising can allow for very vital information to surface in a company that if you don't allow it to surface will blow up on you. You know, so we all know the sort of quiet performer that never makes it fast, etc. And then one day, you know, quits for, you know, no explicable reason, etc. And if you're able to say, look, if anyone needs help around here, that's okay. Not knowing is fine. Making errors is fine. Being a bit of an idiot is fine. We all are. That has to come from the top in an organization. You know, one of the most you know, relieving and alleviating things is for those at the top to say, we make mistakes all the time. And here are five that I've made this week. And also, I'm scared. Uh, for certain things make me anxious. And I'm a bit of an idiot at points. I mean, literally, if, if you wanted to help an organization to function better and for fear, to, because, you know, we're talking about fear and its role on thinking, this happens writ large within organizations, particularly large organizations with hierarchical structures, people get terrified of their own best insights. And so locked into people's brains are clues as to the future of the company that, you know, could be revolutionary. And I often found, you know, at the School of Life that we'd have quite a sort of boring meeting and sort of standard meeting where everybody would do the expected thing and we'd be trying to think up a solution and everybody would come up with a sort of respectable answer. And then we'd go and have lunch or go and sit in the pub or something. And then suddenly somebody would actually solve the problem in a far better way because suddenly it doesn't matter so much anymore. No one's, you know, someone just tosses out the, you know, an answer and sort of laughs because it's so silly. But no, 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 it's not at all. It's the idea. Mm. And so we found this so much that the advice to companies is to bake in this sort of um, moments when the stakes are low, but the upside could be huge in terms of new ideas. Our final clip of this very special episode is from Jason Calacanis, investor extraordinaire who is the first angel investor in Uber, amongst others, and the self-proclaimed greatest angel investor of all time. If that sounds like a bit of a boast, then you'll just have to listen to our conversation to find out more. Links are in the show notes. Here's a clip from that conversation that's packed to the rafters with insights and stories. When you're young and it's your first or second startup, you are the startup. And there's no separation of you, the individual, and the self from the entity. So I was the Silicon Alley reporter. When the Silicon Alley reporter died, it was very personal and emotional. When I did weblogs, the second company, I was like, it's a collection of blogs. I built it. I have a partner. I've got an investor, Mark Cuban. We've got 500 bloggers. There's 95 blogs. I didn't feel like it was me. So I felt fine letting it go. With Mahalo, it started to feel like me again, and I felt very connected to it, but I also still had a little bit of that battle scar. So when we lost all of our traffic because Matt Cutts and the Google team decided to destroy all these competitors and content companies in a very anti-competitive way, 
without any warning, to mm -hmm. take their own partners and pull the rug out from under them and then be just complete obnoxious a-holes and not give us any relief or even communicate with us. It was infuriating for me, but I realized I'm an idiot for trusting Matt Cutts and Google and thinking that they would have ever done the right thing for us. That was my mistake. They tricked me and it was, it was a good lesson. But at that point, I was so distanced from it that I was like, I'm a creator, I make things. And some things I make will work, some things won't. And if I'm really taking chances, then stuff shouldn't work out. So part of me creating things that do work in the world is me having things that don't work in the world. So when you have failure, it's just a precursor to success. And that's the way you should look at it. If this podcast doesn't work out, the next one will. If you had a bad speaker at a conference or people didn't show up for your first conference and you do another conference and it's packed, you learn something. And so I'm always trying to encourage my founders to separate themselves and be objective. My dad lost his bar in 1987 when the stock market crashed. I lost my first business when the market crashed in 2001. And I was faced with the same exact thing he was. When the stock market crashed in 1987, the great Black Monday crash, all the people who owed him money at the bar at Tabs got laid off from Wall Street and they couldn't pay. And then he got in arrears of his taxes and bills and it imploded. Then what happens? I'm the king of New York. I got a $12 million a year business, 100 employees. I'm on Charlie Rose. I'm in the New Yorker. I'm like, oh, I've, I've done it. I made it to Manhattan, right? Like, I'll show you, Dad. <laughs> it's like, and then what happens? The stock market crashes. And all the advertisers go out of business and they can't pay their bills. And I'm like, my dad had a bunch of bankers who couldn't pay their bar tabs and I had people who couldn't pay their ad bills all because the stock market crashed. So that was like that cave moment for me, which was like, oh, I'm really battling myself. This is an archetypal type battle. You're When you're a founder, you're up against your own limitations more than you are any particular enemy. And understanding where you're at in life and what you're capable of, that's part of the maturation process, right? Like, I'm yeah. not out there trying to build like a $5 billion fund. I'm not trying to be Masayoshi-san. I'm not trying to be Sequoia. You know, I'm not – I know that if I try to do those things, you know, it could be an Icarus-like moment, you know, and – I should just stay in my lane and do what I'm great at and that I like. It reminds me a bit of, um, well, part of what you were just saying reminds me a bit of the Mike Tyson quote. Um, yeah, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Not that one. Even oh. better. And it's a better so one than poetic. That. Oh, really? You literally won't believe it came from him. But is that, no, I um, believe it. He's a poet. Yeah, it's amazing. So um, if you aren't humble in your lifetime, then humbleness will find a way of finding itself upon you. It's like a little poetry thing. And mm. obviously he's got no money and all these bills and... It's like, that was my thing. I was an arrogant jerk and I wasn't humble at any point and now I have yeah. no choice. The big lesson I think a lot of founders and people have early success especially is that the things that made them successful in that first phase of their career will actually work against them in the second phase. Secret Leaders has been an amazing journey and we're just getting started. If you want to listen to the full versions of the interviews we've mentioned in this episode, then please do check them out. If you're up to date, then stay tuned because there's so much more where that came from. If you've got value from this, then please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a thing. That is the number one most valuable thing you could do other than, of course, telling a friend. Thank you so much for all the support over the years. If you're new, if you've stayed with us for ages, either way, we hope we've provided value so far and we can't wait to do more of that to come. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. If the vaccine program does change or we need to adapt our software or more people sign up to use the vaccine uh, booking software, it's very, very hard to like say no to that or turn away from it, uh, right? So... I've definitely felt, you know, both the pressure myself and then felt awful for almost having put, like, the team through it, in a sense. I don't think any of us quite realised the Herculean effort that would be required over such a long time to actually deliver it. Next week is AcuRx, a UK health tech startup deeply involved in the COVID fight.
If you're enjoying our show and you're happy to help us, please can you get out your phone right now and rate us on your favourite podcast player because that's the stuff that actually makes a difference. Thanks so much. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.